and I was not surprised that in the middle of the week this week I was contacted by somebody connected to our church uh, who needs some help in this area. And, um, and so as I thought about it, I thought, you know, I, in the sermon that I planned, I, had, I purposely left one section out because it's the hard section. <laughs> uh, my original intention was to demonstrate God's perspective on the sin of homosexuality and then to share how God would have us speak to those who are in that lifestyle. But after interacting with some of you and uh, giving it some prayerful thought, I've realized that, that I need to add a section here, so I'm adding a sermon into this, uh, making a, one sermon into three. And what I hope to do today is, is to help us understand that, that God goes beyond just calling this a sin. And we need to go beyond just calling it a sin. We, we need to go all the way to saying, how does this develop and how can we help folks who are struggling in this way. This topic scares me more than the general topic of homosexuality because this is where the discussion gets very personal. Um, I, and uh, it gets personal because we're going to talk about how does this develop. And, and I would tell you right up front, I cannot tell you exactly how homosexuality develops in every single person every single time. And I hope you will take this message in that sense. I think God is clear about how sin develops and progresses in our lives. And I hope to uh, help you think that through a little bit, not just in the area of homosexuality, but in all areas of sin and righteousness. But also, if, if we're going to care for everybody who, who God might cause to walk through our parking lot party or might cause to walk in these doors, we need to be prepared thoughtfully to help everyone know the joy and peace and freedom of God. And that excites me so much that I don't care about preaching on any topic, including this one. And so let's start by reviewing briefly. I would say this, if you were not here last week, I would strongly urge you to go online and listen or download the message. Ask for a CD, we'll make one for you. And uh, listen to this, not because what I said was so wonderful, but because God's truth is so clear, and I want you to get the whole picture. I know that in these three sermons, I'm not preaching the whole picture, much less today, I'm not giving the whole story. I'm giving a piece of it. And so I would urge you just to, to, uh, to listen fully to all of these things. But here's a review from last week. What does God's word say, first of all, about sexuality? It says, God blesses the sexual expression of one man with one woman in the marital relationship. That is what's right. We've got to always keep that in mind. And um, it is a very restrictive definition. Okay, it is. If you want to call me a Bible thumper, if you want to call me a conservative, call me whatever you want, that's what God says and that's what is true, but the cool thing about following God's path is it brings joy and peace, and nothing else does, and that's why people keep going through so many evolutions in their personal life. They're trying to find joy and peace, but in terms of marital life, this is the only thing that'll do it. Number two, God's plan for sexual expression was restated by Jesus and the apostles. I won't reference those scriptures. You can find them in last week's sermon. But it's very clear, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all there. 
God's plan for sexual expression also makes sexual sin unique. In other words, God says every sin that a man sins is outside of his body, but this one is against his body. There is something unique in the way that this sin impacts us. And I think we can see that in the many lifestyle issues that are created when sexuality is used wrongly. I mean, when people get involved sexually, it changes the way they think about each other and the world, and uh, poor decisions are made when, you know, I, I, uh, I tended to, uh, to a murder, uh, the victim of a murder at a murder scene where a man came to murder three people, and he was going to actually murder four, including himself, and he ended up only killing a couple of them and wounding the others terribly, and it was all because of sexuality. These people all worked for a strip place, a strip bar, and a couple of them had been engaged and broken up and took up with somebody else, and there was a jealous lover and so on. Don't tell me it's just a physical thing. That is the lie of Satan. It's just a physical thing. And so people want to do whatever they can. Oh, it's just a physical thing. No, it's not. People wouldn't kill one another over just a physical thing. There is something unique about sexual sin. And we need to take it seriously. Not to be the church ladies. It's not about saying, oh, we're better than everybody and we're more conservative than everybody. It's like, hey, you're going to ruin your life, mister. I mean, if we care for people, we have to care about this area of life because it ruins lives. It ruins lives. What does God's word say about homosexual behavior in particular? God condemned the homosexual behavior of Sodom, and I started with this last week because the episode at Sodom is early in God's timetable before the law was given. And then God condemned homosexuality in the Old Testament law, and God condemns homosexuality in the New Testament. I don't know how much more clear you could be. Um, you know, uh, God only needs to say something once, but he, he said it in three epics of working with mankind, uh, three time periods, and so it's really clear. And, and of course, we have to go on, on to say, now how do people argue with God's clear truth? What is the method? Well, the first method is appealing to science. And we looked at a quote there. We looked at several quotes. i just give you one again. The Sex Information Education Council of the U.S., an organization which advocates homosexuality, states in their book, Sexuality and Man, man does not from birth possess an instinctive desire to achieve any specific goal. Now, I would disagree with that statement also, but with the second half of it, it's really quite clear Sexual behavior is the cumulative result of learning and conditioning experience. In other words, as one other author put it, homosexuals are made, not born. And so the appeal to science as though we're born a certain way or we're, we're destined a certain way and we can't change our behavior, that does not hold up to, to scrutiny. Um, appeal to majority opinion. You know, everybody knows, everybody thinks, etc. No, that's... You know, the old adage, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff too? Uh, when it comes to this area, the answer is yes, in our society. And you, part of the reason I'm sharing these, these concepts is when it comes to you 
talking to people about God's truth, you need to hear these arguments for what they are. You need to hear the argument come across as saying, wait a minute, they're just saying everybody thinks that, so that's an authority in and of itself. When you can grasp that people are arguing that way, then you can answer back in a way that gets through to them. You can say, wait wait a minute, you're telling me the majority rules on this issue. Yeah, the majority of people agree with this. Well, you know, the majority think this way or this way or this way or whatever, and help them understand that their whole way of arguing is at fault. Then attack on the nature of the Bible and attack on the meaning of the Bible. I can't think of a more substantial example of this than the Catholic Pope this week. Pope Francis, this is a quote from his words. When we read about creation in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God was a magician with a magic wand able to do everything. (laughs) Duh, yeah. But that is not so. God is not a divine being or a magician, but the creator who brought everything to life. That is the most nonsensical statement I've ever seen right there. Okay? Hey, I'm not putting words in the guy's mouth. These are the words coming out of his mouth. And that's why this is the Pope saying homosexuality is not that big a deal. He's going to find a way for homosexuals to integrate into the Catholic Church. And the reason is because his whole view of God in the Scripture is way dumbed down, even from previous popes. Evolution in nature is not inconsistent with the notion of creation. Because evolution requires the creation. That's another nonsensical statement. Now, he's trying to, what he's trying to say in that last part is this. We all know that human beings have changed over time. Yeah, that's true. You know, the average guy who wore a suit of armor was about this tall. And I think the average guy in the military these days is about, you know, whatever, this tall. Whatever 5'10 is average or whatever it is, you know. Hey, they're still human beings. No human being ever evolved into anything else. You know what I'm saying? And so he's, he's, he, he's confusing change within the species with other things. But, but this, this statement, you know, God is not a magician with a magic wand who just makes things happen. What in the world does he think God is? Now, if, if you can read the Bible and get that picture... You can get anything out of the Bible. And you got to understand, folks, that, uh, let me go on a rabbit trail, because I can, because I'm the preacher. <laughs> you know why people get messed up when they get married? Because they say later on, well, he or she said they were a Christian. The Pope says he's a Christian. Can you be a Christian and believe that? We have to know God's truth. You should not be surprised that many people around you, both, both unbelievers, outright haters of God, and Christians, have a, have a weak view of sexuality because they look at the Bible and they say, well, you know, whatever. That's, that's really the root issue. Um, let me quote one other guy. I didn't want to put it up there, but... Um, 
a Georgetown University professor, that's a Catholic university, he said this, science is designed to tell you how the universe works. Religion is designed to tell you why, why there is a universe. So in his, in his thinking, the fact that it says God spoke it into being, no, that's not what the Bible is about. No. Science is the only thing that can explain how things came into being. Uh, it just doesn't get much clearer than that. So, we, we, we ask the question, why do people fight against God's truth? Sinners are fighting for the approval of their sin. You talk to somebody who's living in sin about any area, and they will push back. Uh, you know, when parents talk to their children about this or this or this, the kid is going, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, and that, that's just a small example of what's going on here. We, we have to decide whether we want to live in the truth and speak the truth as graciously as possible or whether we want everybody to like us. There's no middle ground on this issue. There's no middle ground on a lot of issues. Sinners are fighting for approval of their sins. Satan is fighting for control of humanity. Don't discount this. I don't know exactly how Satan gets his agenda into the hearts and minds of unbelievers, but he is going, 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 because if he doesn't, then, then God's truth will win, and he's going to push and push all that he can. Sinners cannot grasp any other possible reality, and I hope you'll understand that statement a little bit better today as we ask this question. How does God explain the development of a homosexual life? And so the first thing that I would say is this from Mark chapter 7, the potential for all sin lies within every human being. Look at Mark 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 21. <clears throat> this is Jesus talking. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, Murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, I would, I would assume that Jesus is speaking this way. He's talking about man in his natural condition. He's not talking about a born-again man or woman. And if you've been in Christ any length of time, certainly if you've been sitting under my ministry for any length of time, you understand that when you come to Christ, there is a great transformation within you, and now the new life of Christ is possible, and as you grow day by day, that old life is removed, and the new life grows and is strengthened. Okay, So Christ is talking, first and foremost, about an unsaved person, the natural condition of mankind. And what we need to grasp is that all of these things are possible right out of the heart of human being without environmental impact. I, you know, it's not hard uh, to look at baby Gwen, who comes to work with her mom, and I hardly know she's there, and say... All people are born innocent and sweet. 
in a couple years, that probably won't be the case. <laughs> probably more so with baby Gwen than with baby Titus. <laughs> okay. The reality is we're born with the capacity for every kind of sin. I said the capacity. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look at the list. It's not hard to grasp that. Evil thoughts. Yeah, that's an easy one. Adultery. We see that all the time. Fornication. That's the broadest word for sexual sin. Murder. Well, we go, I don't know about murder. Is everybody capable of being a murderer? Again, I'm talking about natural people without the interaction of Christ. Theft. Well, yeah, that's not that big of a deal. That's the way we think, right? Murder's a big deal. Theft, not so big, right? Adultery, well, you know, that's bad, but it's not like murder. Right? We've got the scale of sin, right? And you think that's the way Jesus thought? And that's one of our other problems in evangelicalism. We go, well, homosexuality, well, you know, it's bad, but it's not like murder. My wife and I had some friends woman didn't know it, but she married a man who was a homosexual, and his pastor knew it, and he worked on the staff of their church. And you know what some of the people said? Well, sometimes you have to put up with a real deficit in a person to get their skill. So you're going to scale down the sin because he's got this great skill? What kind of thinking is that? Jesus said all this sin comes out of us. Covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Some of those are easier to understand than others. We struggle to see how these sins are possible in every person because many of us here have worked at developing godliness. And so in our lives, we would look and say, well, I would never murder anybody. Thank God. That ought to be true. But we don't have to look too far to understand that sin is there. And it comes up inside. And if we would take off our Christian sunglasses, which are good, and look at natural man and even think back about ourselves and realize, you know, maybe that is possible. We can't even imagine such a thing. And one of the words in this list is the word lewdness. And the word lewdness means to be out of control, literally. It's almost always used in lists of sexual sins. Typically, if it's used, there'll be other words also. There'll be the word adultery. We know what that is. Fornication is a broad word for sexual sin. And then there's a couple of other words. One is uncleanness is sometimes used. And then the word lewdness. If you've got those four words in a sentence, you have to think God meant something a little bit different by each one. And so we go to another use of the word lewdness here in 2 Peter. God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the lewdness of the wicked. Friends, what was the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's homosexual sin. Here it's called filthy. It's interesting that it's translated filthy conduct by a couple different translations. It's the same word right there, lewdness. To be out of control. 
Now, here's what I want you to grasp. Look at this again. Mark 7, 21. From within, out of the heart of men proceeds all of these sins, including the capacity. Key word, capacity. Not accusing everybody of having wrong thoughts. The capacity for homosexuality. Now, let me ask this question. Are homosexuals born that way? I would answer it this way, no. But we're all born with the capacity for all sin, including homosexual sin. When we look at our lives and think, well, I would never do this or this or this or this, and then somehow inflate ourselves up over those who have done this and this and this, we're missing a point in the scripture, aren't we? And the point is, That old cliche, there but for the grace of God go I. And if we're going to have Christ's heart for homosexuals, we have to have this understanding. The capacity was in my heart, and even as a believer, that capacity is still there, and I have got to work against the pressures of sin so that capacity doesn't become reality. We must not confuse our current condition with our human capacity. Now, how does that capacity become actual sin? Sinful behavior is the result of a sinful heart's response to the difficulties of life. I'm going to say it again. I know right now I'm going to jump onto some ground that is not quite as stable as I'd like it to be, but I think it's biblical. Okay? And so please, 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 if you come up afterwards or this week or you email me and say, I know somebody that was this, this, and this, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to say, okay. Because I understand there are multiple specifics, but I think there are some principles for us to get a hold to. Turn with me to James chapter 1, please. I found James chapter 1 to be tremendously rich as I meditated on how does sin develop into a lifestyle. And I would encourage you to think on the first half of this chapter in particular regarding any sin that may be troubling you or a loved one, not just this one. But we will confine our application to this one. And what I'm going to state here now is the positive way that a human being experiences, the way that a human being can experience a positive impact from a difficult life experience. Where am I at here? There we go. How can a human being experience a positive impact from a difficult life experience? Follow me in James 1. James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. My brethren... He's talking to Christians. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature in Christ, complete, lacking nothing. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Let the rich glory in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers with the grass. The flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man. The word blessed in the scripture means happy. Happy is the man who endures temptation or testing. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I could go around the room right now and ask people to share how God blessed through trials. And you could get testimony from people who could look back and say, this was hard for this and this, but I endured with the Lord, and the Lord blessed me this and this and this. And we all know that's the norm for the Christian life, right? Shake your heads. (laughs) Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We all know that. What I'm trying to tell you is, The only way that happens, the only way something bad can happen and good come out of it genuinely for an individual person is when they are walking in a James 1 kind of way. Now hang in there, I'm going to come back to homosexuality, you'll understand. We must know Christ as Savior. We must embrace difficulty as God's path to maturity. We must stay under the difficulty. We must ask God for help in the understanding. You see, I'm marching right through the passage here. We must live in true faith. We must focus on the privilege of godliness. That's the part about the rich man, the poor man. He says, hey, poor man, you got trials. Glory in the fact that God is working in your life. And then he says, hey, rich man, glory in the fact that even though your life is going to die and fade away and nobody will remember you, you can do something eternal by growing in Christ. We must value humble faith. We must focus on the eternal reward as the ultimate reward of all the difficulties in life. Now, I know I'm about to say something that's not new. This is the way a godly person responds to difficulty. And I'm using the word difficulty because there's there's a couple of ways this word is translated, trials or testing, and both of them are inherent in the word. In other words, a difficulty comes along. It is a test of our faith. Will we walk with God or not? But it is also a a temptation as in an opportunity to do the wrong thing as we handle it. And we know that as Christians, the only way we can work through difficulty is following this kind of a path. We could have also looked at Romans 5, which also gives us a similar path. Now, what does this have to do with homosexual identity. We've already learned that homosexual identity is developed, not inborn. If that is the case, then we understand that the development of this sinful behavior occurs because of a wrong response to the difficulty in life. And it's not, this is not the only sex sinful identity that develops because of a wrong response to life. Have you ever, let let me just go over here as a side illustration. How many of you have heard the anecdotal statistic that a majority of the people who are violent offenders in prison were abused as children? Okay. Now, it's the the same scenario that I'm gonna draw here, which is this. How 
is a sinful heart. That heart that we just read about in Mark chapter 7, here's, here's a little baby, a, a little Gwen, a little Titus, a perfect little bundle of joy, and then as they start to grow, they have this capacity for sin, and then at some point in their young life, difficulty comes in, and they don't know the Lord. Difficulties like the interruption in God's plan for the family. Now that's a very broad statement. Listen to this statement written by a former homosexual, a godly man who teaches others how to come into the joy and peace of the Lord. His name is Frank Worthen, W-O-R, Worthen. He's written a book or two. Um, I have a curriculum that he has developed to help people in in their walk out of this. And if you, you could look him up on the internet. A former homosexual leader of a ministry, he says this, we have worked with thousands of former homosexuals and learned much about the homosexual condition. We believe that the deepest root of homosexuality is a break in the relationship bonds within the family. The security of a child depends on a three-way bond, mother to child, father to child, and the often overlooked and neglected bond of father to mother. Any break in this triangle will produce a difficulty for the child. Now, I'm very aware of what I'm I'm saying right here and what I'm going to say coming forth could create some fear in some people, and you don't need to be afraid. If you're doing your best to walk with the Lord and live out godly family life, God is going to work and things are going to be fine in your family. And I know that sounds like an arrogant overgeneralization, but I'll stand by it. Because I think that on balance, those who walk with the Lord, God takes care of them. But what this man has just said, and what everybody, everybody, an overgeneralization, but pretty much true, has said, the vast majority of people who come into a homosexual identity have some kind of a serious problem in their family life. I have a friend who, whose dad basically ignored him. Dad was in the home. He wasn't gone, but he kind of ignored him, and he got attached to his mom. And so he grew up looking for the affection and attention of a man. Okay? And his, I don't believe his dad was a Christian. You know, my friend didn't become a Christian until later on. Let me ask some questions Now think about a small child who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't have parents who know the Lord, or maybe they only have one parent or the other, but they're they're in an environment in which they're trying to figure things out. How is a child to understand single parenthood? I know all of the things that our society says, you know, famously, uh, what was that TV show where the woman decided she's going to have a baby and and, uh, you know, Dan Quayle criticized her single parenthood, and, oh, he's an idiot, you know, a single parent's just as good as two parents, and years later, the secular sociologist came out with the study, and the headline is, Dan Quayle was right, that a stable two-parent home is the ideal, and now, some of you are single parents, I mean no insult to you, I don't mean this is impossible for you, I'm just saying that when there is a break in the family, it is how does the child interpret and adjust and make choices 
when he basically doesn't have any godly input. What's he do? He's on his own. We'll come to some of the other influences that he'll get in just a minute. What's a child to think of a father who has no love for him or her or who is just absent or gone or or doesn't want to be around? What's the child going to think? I mean, if you have this significant person in your life and suddenly they're gone, what do you assume? And remember, it's a child. One of our problems in society is we look at the child and we think they're little adults. Any of you ever raised any kids? John MacArthur said something revolutionary that I heard years ago. The basic problem with children is they're children. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as they try to think things through, they come up with the wrong thing. How does a child understand divorce? I had a kid in my youth group. This is like a 17-year-old kid, big, strapping, handsome. Everybody loved this kid. I think he was godly as far as I could tell. And his parents got a divorce after years of acrimony and all kinds of foolishness. Parents claimed to be Christian. You know, the dad was not a good man. And this kid comes into my office saying, boy, I just can't help but thinking somehow this is my fault. Think, man, of all the kids in your family, it is not your fault. Maybe your older brother. <laughs> but but this, this is a kid who's been in church, has been in my youth group. And, and he's struggling with that thought. What's this little kid going to think who doesn't even know the Lord? Should we be surprised they come up with strange ways to compensate for that which, they, which is either genuinely lacking or at least which they perceive to be lacking? We should not be surprised when a child reacts badly to these things. Rather, we should be surprised when they respond maturely. Really? Let me, let me read an example to you. This is not a proof. This is, this is an illustration. The first eight years of my life were pretty average for a pastor's daughter. Both of my sisters, and, well, you'll see where this gal gets to here. Both of my sisters and I sang in church. Life seemed fine until 1983 when my parents separated due to adultery. The seven years that followed were a hell I would rather forget. I was tossed between mom's house and dad's girlfriends. Love was the last thing offered in my home, so I pursued that feeling. Love was the last thing offered in my home, so I pursued that feeling at school. I began to hang out with the cool crowd at age eight. Drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, and sexual fantasies began to fill my life. My parents were headed for a divorce and nothing I could do would stop it. Suicide was the only answer that came to my mind. One day after school, I sat on my bathroom floor and decided to end it. After ingesting a bottle of aspirin, I ended up flatlined in a hospital. As doctors worked hurriedly to bring me back to life, little did I know that dad chose that same day to finally move out. Two years later, my parents allowed God back into their lives. People thought everything was fine at home now, 
Even my parents felt like things were back to normal. But even though their marriage might have been reconciled, I still had a lot of deep wounds that hurt. The only place I gained attention and love was on the basketball court. Through the years, that's what I poured myself into. At 16, I was introduced to another older girl who was a town hero that excelled in basketball. She and I were immediate friends. Through her, I was introduced to the homosexual lifestyle. I want to come back to that in just a minute, but remember this. This was not about homosexuality for this girl. What was it about? It was about her dying inside because of the word she used, hell, in her home. And so in her struggle to fix her life, she goes out looking for attention. (sighs) Difficulty of an interruption in God's plan for the family. I've left that broad. There's a lot of ways that happens. Number two, the difficulty of sexual abuse or pornography. Sexual abuse often leads to some kind of sexual sin because the unsaved or even the saved child doesn't know how to respond to it. Years ago, when I decided I would have to preach about this, I I, I grieved a little bit because we didn't used to have to preach against sexual abuse of children. Everybody knew it was wrong. I'm afraid it was still going on, but we just didn't hear about it. So here's what I want to say to you children. If you consider yourself a child today, you have the absolute right to say no to anybody who who goes after you in a wrong way. Anybody who would try to convince you that some type of sexual activity is okay, you have the absolute right of disobeying. So many adults try to couch this this terrible sin in terms of, well, I'm an adult and you've got to listen to me. And Don't you ever worry about what's going to happen to anybody else, no matter what threat you get. You come and see me. You come and see your parents. Don't you ever feel like you have to obey some wicked person who's trying to get you to do a wicked thing you say no but unfortunately those wicked things happen and what's a child to do to interpret that compound these two things together here's a child whose family life is kind of in a turmoil they don't get genuine positive good attention like every child needs and then somebody comes along and and forces sexual behavior on them. And some of them come out of that thinking, oh, this is how this works. If I want this person's attention or that person's attention, this is how it works. And we've had kids come to our Awana Club sexualized. That is, somehow their sexual eyes have been opened way before time and they're talking this way and they're doing this and we're thinking wow what happened to this kid what happened to that kid was the the adults in his life or her life from another person 
Um, some of his earliest memories were painful ones. He says there are vague recollections of his father leaving the family when he was four. His parents divorced shortly after that. A four-year-old believes everything that happens in the family is about him. Dad leaves, so it must be my fault. These are the perceptions of a child, not a rational adult. Through his childhood, he rarely saw or talked to his father. He had visions of his father in mind. He fantasized about having a male caregiver in his life. When he was in junior high school, he was sexually molested by a neighborhood boy of the same age. Now, keep those two things in mind. He fantasized about a male caregiver. He said, I want a man to care for me. It wasn't about sex. And then in junior high, he's sexually abused by another boy. The sexual encounter made him feel both pleasure and shame, but guilt was the overriding, and it just went from there. Same thing can happen with pornography when people accidentally come into pornography. When a deep need for connection to a mother or father becomes sexualized, the individual begins to see their identity in a new way and tries to meet their deepest desires through sexual connection. There's a third difficulty, and, I, and I've chosen these as broad areas that seem to be the, the most impactful in a homosexual identity. And I've called this one the difficulty of a unique personality. Now, I firmly believe, based on God's word, that every behavior that God labels as an issue of sin and righteousness is changeable in a person's life based on the transforming salvation God gives us. Sinful behavior cannot be excused simply by appealing to, well, that's just the way I am. Well, that might be the way you are. And that might just be the thing you need to work on more than anything else. If we confuse the issues of personality with character, they certainly interrelate, but anything God says can change can change. Now, my understanding of personality grew significantly when my twins were born, one of which is sitting right there. Same mom. Same birthday, 30 seconds, I believe, apart or something like that. Same home, same church, same Sunday school, same class at school. Most of the time, through their younger years, two different people, okay? And there's nothing wrong with what either one of them was or is. I can see there's a basic personality and if I was to characterize it very, just very lightly, I'd say Stephanie's a little more quiet and thoughtful, and Molly's a little more, you know, throw caution to the wind, let's go for it, kind of a thing. <laughs> okay, now, that's, those are issues of personality, but even those things can be changed by the transformation of God. They can be molded, they can be used to God's glory. Some men come out of the womb more feminine, and some come out more masculine. Do you remember a couple guys in the Bible? What was their names? Jacob and Esau, and what was one of them like? He was really hairy, 
And the other guy was really smooth. One guy was a mama's boy, one guy was a daddy's boy. Okay? How does that happen? They're twins. <laughs> By God's grace, that's the way children are. Now, here's the point of this. Every individual has some unique traits. And if those traits happen to place that child outside of the norm as our society creates it, then it becomes a difficulty. A man who is somewhat effeminate or a woman who is somewhat masculine, we call that a tomboy. We have a lot of other worse names for the man. Okay, but there's nothing wrong with either one of them. There's nothing wrong with a woman who has a more, more masculine, you know, kind of approach to things. But here's a child. Here's a five-year-old. Here's a six-year-old. Here's a seven-year-old. And let's, let's think of the boy who's kind of feminine. Maybe he's not too good at sports. Maybe his voice is a little bit high. And now the stuff comes from the outside and he has to interpret and work with it and all he has within him is his sinful heart. And that stuff is painful. Same thing for a, a young woman who might be different in some way. From my earliest years, I had a strong desire to be a girl. I can remember daydreaming about being female before I was in kindergarten. I preferred girls as playmates and friends, and I preferred their interest in games to those of boys who seemed to me to be rough and dirty. Many kids made fun of me for being a tom girl and a sissy. In elementary school, I disliked sports, cars, mechanical things while enjoying music, art, reading, writing, and talking. You see, there's nothing wrong with that but you're made to think there's something wrong with that. And then you have to interpret it. I was one of the two or three scapegoat kids who were mocked by all the guys. Sometimes I was mocked for being feminine, the way I carried my books, the way I crossed my legs, the way I got along so well with girls. Things only got worse as I got older. The number of my girlfriends gradually diminished and the girls became as standoffish as the boys. I began dressing up in girls' clothing very early in life. Actually, my first cross-dressing was a very casual event. I was six or so, and my mother put a white fur hat on me, and I looked in the mirror, and she said, I was so pretty, I should have been a girl. This ain't rocket science, folks. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to overly simplify, but when a child has a life circumstance that is challenging, they will interpret it and respond to it according to the dictates of their own heart and mind. And when that challenge is as deep as the ones we have been describing, the drive to compensate for the hardship is strong. And in the right setting, it can result in the assumption of, of what is needed. What I need here is to become homosexual. I need to be, have other men. I need to have other women. I need to dress like a girl, whatever. This brings us to a disturbing and challenging element, which is this. Sin is encouraged by external approval. This is the place where our society bears an element of of responsibility in people's lives. 
Sin is encouraged by external approval. This is not a new phenomenon. There has been homosexual sin and people who lived in that lifestyle for thousands of years. I would assume that almost as long as there has been sin on the earth, I'm talking about the second generation of sinners. Because God had to address it in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah. This is an old, an old phenomenon. When a society allows, approves, and even encourages homosexual behavior, it cannot but encourage those who are struggling, just as we have spoken, to make the wrong choice. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I have no doubt that a school teacher who is a homosexual will influence his or her students who may be struggling with sexual identity. I would not be surprised to find that a young person would be encouraged on their journey to a homosexual lifestyle by the success of someone like current CEO of Apple Computers who just came out and said, I'm a homosexual. I'm sure there are some, some people in the, in the wired world who struggle with this sin and are going, well, hey, if he can be successful, I can be that way too. And I'm sure it encourages them. I would expect the legal status and protection offered by homosexual, afforded homosexual individuals in our country will be cited by some people as a justification for their choices. But we've got to remember that the constant pressure of our society comes from the power behind it. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once worked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. <sighs> Homosexuality is no more satanic than materialism. But it is satanic in this sense. He wants people not to follow the Lord. And so he'll do whatever he can through the world system to plant thoughts in people's minds that will take them away from the world. Satan wants our society to be enslaved to sin, not serving Christ. Sin is encouraged by external approval, and then it becomes an entrenched identity with practice. Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. Oh, well, here we go. Living in sin creates progressive decay. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption. He who sows to the spirit will reap everlasting life. This is uh, God's principle. This is not about God's punishment. This is about the natural results of the choices we make. If you choose to live in sexual sin of any kind, you will reap the corruption, the decay, the ruin that comes with sexual sin. And I could illustrate that in many ways, but one of those has to do with homosexuality. Every deed is a seed that produces a crop. Godly deeds produce an increasingly good life. Sinful deeds produce an increasingly sinful life. Every investment in sin increases your connection to sin. From Ephesians chapter 4, this I say and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness 
to work all kinds of uncleanness with greediness. What this is saying is when you choose to live in sin, it gets worse and worse because you want more and more. Just some more will just fill up my cup and then I'll be fine. Some more, I just need some more and some more. That's why those magazines at the check stand talk about the revolving door of marriage amongst the movie stars. Or all kinds of other revolving doors going, going, going. I just read about the actress Tori Spelling and her husband burning through $18 million in just a few years, she has 127 storage units of her belongings besides their huge mansion and a catalog, probably a computer file, to record all of her belongings and what storage unit they're in. And she's upset that she didn't inherit more money from her dad. Her dad didn't inherit her much, just a really a small amount of his estate because she spends so much money. Why does she spend it? Because sin reigns in her mortal body. She's trying to fill up whatever's lacking in her life. And it won't happen. You'll just become more and more entrenched. Every decision to allow sin to remain increases its hold And we can get to a place where we don't feel like we are making decisions anymore because we are totally enslaved. Homosexuality becomes a whole life identity, so to stop the sin means to change almost everything that's significant in your life. Clothing, physical mannerisms, places you frequent, people you hang out with, things you read and watch. It would be similar to coming out of like a religious cult or a a criminal gang. Your whole life has to change. And so when you talk about change, they're going, "This this is me, this is who I am. But the reason is because they have invested in sin and now it has enslaved them. The enslaving nature of sin makes change seem impossible. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. If you know people in regard to the flesh, you will say, you can't change. But if you know them in regard to Christ, you will say, you can change. And that's the wonderful truth that is for us. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3 as I conclude today. Titus chapter 3. There are many things which you might take away from today's message. I know it's a tough subject, but if I don't talk to you about it, who is? And if we don't listen to what God has to say, then where are we going to get our information There are many things you might take away from today's message, but I want to summarize an attitude that I hope you take away from Titus chapter 3. Paul talking to Titus about how he should talk to his people. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Remind them to speak evil of no one. Remind them to speak evil of no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also 
once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified or made righteous by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I hope you notice today that God speaks to us about sin, not just homosexual sin. All of us fit into this pattern that we've looked at just with different issues. Until we know Christ, we cannot be free of anything, but in Christ we can be free. I hope you will go away from today's message looking more kindly on those who struggle with this sin, but also looking more capably and saying, God can help you. God wants to liberate you. I hope you will take a real hard look at your family life today. Not to, start, not to start living in fear, but to prayerfully seek to be what God wants you to be to husband and wife, to children, for the sake of all in your family. Lastly, if you are struggling with homosexual desires or behaviors, I hope you will notice that God understands the path you've walked on. And he's able to help you walk into his freedom. Heavenly Father, take your word, make it, make it permanent in our mind, take my words away. If I have said anything that has taken away from your truth, take it away and let your truth remain. Give us your mind, give us your love for those who struggle with any sin, including the sin of homosexuality. Free us from whatever we have allowed ourselves to become enslaved to. Help us to walk in your peace and joy. Oh, Father, work in our church, work through our church. I pray in Christ's name, amen.